and welcome to another Guildhall School podcast. Today we're talking about Stories of Sweet Visions, an event with a programme of song and chamber works celebrating the music of our Head of Composition, Professor Julian Phillips, who I'm very pleased to say joins us today. Hi, Julian. Hello. First off, can you tell us wh- why the name Stories of Sweet Visions? Where, where did this come from? It's actually a quotation of a line of poetry by John Clare. Uh, John Clare is a poet. Um, particularly fascinated by and have been for some time and I'm working on a bigger music theatre project around him. The actual phrase, stories of sweet visions, comes from a late poem by John Clare. First line, it is the evening hour. And the context of it in the poem is, spirit of her I love whispering to me stories of sweet visions as I rove. Uh, and I thought as a phrase, it kind of encapsulated some of the threads in this concert. Stories, because that suggests a kind of listening experience of, of following through the narrative of a piece. And sweet visions, because I, I suppose for me, in everything I write, I'm taking an imaginative leap into a kind of another world of experience. And although the word sweet, I guess, in a contemporary context is quite debased, really, I think in Claire's context, it's a wonderful word that suggests kind of emotional enrichment of something that's touching and poignant. So I thought as a phrase to encapsulate the concert, it, it, mm. it worked rather well. And did the, the title came after the, the programme when you decided what what you were going to be putting together for that concert? Well, in fact, the, t- the phrase comes from one of the pieces in the concert. Mm. So my song cycle for tenor and piano, which is called Love Songs for Mary Joyce, the penultimate song in that is a setting of this poem, It Is the Evening Hour. And so that phrase mm. jumped out at me, really, as, as, a, as a nice sort of title for the event. And how did the programme come about? What, what made you pick the, the pieces that, that you've picked and, and put together for, for that evening? Uh, variety of factors. I suppose one is a kind of selfish composer <laughs> thing, which is that I wrote a piece a while ago now, five, six years ago, called Cantos de Sonho, which is a setting of poems by the Portuguese poet Fernando Pessoa. And Pessoa, who's an absolutely extraordinary and fascinating figure in Portuguese culture, but in European literature more widely, one of the many things that sets his work apart is his obsession with heteronyms, which are effectively poetic alter egos, mm. other identities. I think he created as much as 80 different oh, wow. alter egos in multiple languages because he wrote poems in French, he wrote poems in English, and he wrote poems in Portuguese. And so I set a sequence in this piece of English poems and it's a piece for soprano, baritone and piano trio. And it's only ever really had one performance. So the one thing I wanted to do <laughs> was to get this piece in into another concert. Mm. And another factor is that when we were planning this event, I was working on a composition department project with the Liszt Academy in Budapest. And we were working with an amazing Guildhall piano trio who called the Mithras trio and they played a piece by a wonderful postgrad 
Guildhall composer called Jonathan Woolgar and a, and a piece by a Hungarian composer at the Liszt Academy. And they also, in the concert in the Liszt Academy, performed the Smetna G minor piano trio, and it was an incredible performance. They're an extraordinary ensemble. Mm. They've just won the Trondheim piano yeah. trio competition, yeah. so I think I think they're they're going to have an extraordinary career, I think, as an ensemble. So it was the coming together of working with this amazing piano trio and then having this nagging feeling about this piece, <laughs> Cantosh de Sonia, that needs another performance. So, so in a way, I built the programme out of that mm. because I think, apart from opera, which I've worked quite a lot in, I suppose my other thread is song, but also the kind of interface between song and chamber music, which mm. I find particularly fascinating. And I even in hundreds and hundreds of years of Western classical music, I still think there's plenty of scope for composers to think mm. about how to cross-fertilise between kind of abstract chamber music ideals and the idea of song and text. Mm. Um, you know, I've written a piece for baritone and string quartet, which was a kind of song cycle and a theme of variations mashed up. And Cantush de Sonia is something similar. It's a kind of piano trio, but with song. And that shift between when the music is being led by text and the voice and when it's absorbed into a purely abstract instrumental world, mm. I find that super fascinating. So the whole programme has a mixture of pieces for voice and, and chamber ensembles. It... Um, has a piece that I wrote in the 1990s, a long time ago, for mezzo-soprano mm. and viola called Coronach. And then in the second half, one of the new pieces is a piece for baritone. It was originally going to be for baritone and cello. It's now baritone, cello and harp, mm. because another answer to your question of how have you put the programme together mm. is that I've also worked with another extraordinary Guildhall performer, graduate, uh, the harpist Ol Oliver Wass, who won the gold medal, no less. And I wrote a piece for him called Winter Music, solo harp piece, which he's going to play. And when I was working on this new cycle for baritone and cello, I just kept thinking of this harp on the concert stage doing mm. nothing, <laughs> thinking... I should work the harp into this piece. <laughs> so it's turned into a different kind of a trio, a trio for baritone, cello and harp. Oh, that's quite nice. It's not often it's not a trio that gets wheeled out very often no, on the stage. No. Yeah. There's an amazing Ravel cycle for mezzo, harp and cello and flute called Chanson Madecas. Mm. So that's one of the new pieces in the second half. What kind of things do you enjoy exploring as a composer and, and how do you feel that, that these pieces in particular represent those ideals and those those things that you, you enjoy exploring and, and working with? I think I've always been fascinated by text, but it began really with song and I feel quite a strong connection with the texts that I set in a very dialogic way. You know, the texts in this concert, the Pessoa poems in that piece Cantos de Sonia I kind of absorbed those texts and thought quite profoundly about them and mm. and it's almost a kind of chemical reaction where the the images the language but also the deeper themes invite responses and then music starts growing out mm. of the text so 
a kind of rather organic metaphor in a way would be that for a lot of my music the texts are like seeds mm. that I have to fertilize and grow into into plants um, and that is a bit of a thread in the concert I think there's two solo pieces in the concert solo instrumental pieces the heart piece winter music and the heart piece winter music was absolutely a kind of petri dish for the opera Tale of January because mm. I, I was writing that solo heart piece in the very early stages of planning that opera and one of the concepts in that opera was to create a musical structure that mirrored the four seasons of the mm. year because of course the central character is a personification of winter so I wanted to write a solo heart piece that was like a character study mm. not necessarily for January himself but for the world of, of winter and to think about in terms of imagery and mm. gesture and musical material and pitch control and rhythmic detail to think in quite a metaphorical way about winter. So, you know, in the solo heart piece, this notion of text as the catalyst for music, it's only one word. <laughs> it's just winter. And there's nothing programmatic about it at all, but it is a way of collecting up musical material in an, in an associative way. And then in the second half, the other new piece is a solo piano piece called Barcarola. And I'm writing that for the pianist of the Mithras trio, Dominic Degavino, who is an extraordinary artist, very inspiring person to write for. And so that will be the, the world premiere of this? Of this it will be, be the world, it. it'll yeah. be the world premiere, yes. Are you excited about that? Yes, I'm still fiddling with the middle of the piece. So I'll, I'll feel a bit more excited when it's when it's when you know when, I, when I've written the last notes. Yeah, yeah. And you've collected a quite a distinguished set of of Guildhall musicians and alumni to to perform on that night. How did you pick them? Did you have a piece in mind and then you kind of sort out musicians to perform them, or was it the other way around? You had a, a musician in mind and went through your back catalogue and thought this would be this would be perfect for them. Um, some of that, but also wonderful help and support from colleagues here at Guildhall, particularly Armin Zanner and Samantha Malk in the Vocal Studies Department. Um, we're used to, on a, on a almost weekly basis, have conversations between composition and vocal studies, finding singers and matching the right singers for the right pieces. And I think at Guildhall we do that with great sensitivity in all contexts. And um, James Newby is a now a very successful early career baritone. He's working in Hanover at the moment, and he's going to sing the new baritone cycle. And the other, the other singers and performers have just gathered around the concert in consultation with instrumental departments mm. and, and the vocal studies department. And our wonderful colleague Laura Roberts is going to play with tenor um, Liam Bonthrone, uh, the love songs for Mary Joyce at the end of the first half. So we've built up this nice, this nice ensemble of, mm. of, of wonderful Guildhall singers and instrumentalists. Mm. And then um, what are you most looking forward to about the concert? I mean, it sounds a bit monomaniac, <laughs> but um, particularly this piano trio and piece, Cantus de Sonio, because... It's often the way with new pieces that the first performance is a bit of a 
Oh, trial of <laughs> a trial in an ordeal. I mean, the performers that did it the first time did a beautiful job, but when a piece has no performance history mm. or tradition behind it, everybody is groping in the dark quite a lot, and and rehearsal time is always tight, mm. and so that that level of stress and pressure detracts a little bit from having a sense of objectivity about what the piece is mm. because I think I feel as a composer I know what I've made up to a point but a big part of what you create is kind of unknowable until you sit in a concert hall and even more complicated than that is the fact that actually you don't know until some time afterwards mm. because when you finished a piece I think psychologically you're still entangled with mm. it. You're still obsessing about one bar which you think is not very good or I wish I'd done this or should it have been a bar longer or whatever. But then once the dust has settled and time flows by and you've done other things, you come back to a piece in a much more objective way, almost as if you haven't written it. Mm. It's, it's uncanny. So, of course, I'm looking forward to working with these amazing performers and the two new pieces and and just seeing what the whole thing feels like, but particularly this piano tree and voices piece. Mm. I look forward to that. And does that distance you mentioned of, of time and mind space almost, does that make you happier with the work that you did or make you happy to tinker with it without any of the baggage of when, when you were composing it, when you are putting the piece together initially? I think for me, I mean, after all, the concert on some level is as it is for many people, marking a milestone in the mm. sense of having got this far mm. and getting, I mean, tyranny of numbers and all that, you know, a birthday with a naught on the end. <laughs> and then you look back and think, why, what have I done? And for me, that's that involves quite a lot of sifting. Mm. So I look back and there are, I would have to say, I would have to say that there are probably more pieces uh, I'll put in the bottom drawer than the pieces... I'd be happy to be seen out in public with. Mm. So there's that. And in a way, your question on one level is to do with cultivating a sense of objectivity of what you've created mm. and trying to grapple towards a feeling of the pieces that best speak to what you're trying mm. to do. Yeah. So the first piece in the concert, Coronach for Mezzo and Viola, is from 1994, I think when, you know, that's sort of half a lifetime ago. Mm. But genuinely, I look through that piece, and although I'm not uncritical of it, mm. in many ways I could have written it yesterday. Mm. And that's a nice feeling, because you, you become aware of your own continuity, I mm. suppose. I think you have to be kind to yourself. I mean, everything you you create as a composer, you're going to have shifting course, yeah. feelings about, yeah. which might just depend on the time of day or the day <laughs> of the week. Um, for example, winter music. I, I've never written a piece that's gone through so many versions. And that has really tested the good nature <laughs> and patience of Oliver Was. <laughs> and of course, it is to do with the complexity of trying to write idiomatically for the harp mm. when you're not a harpist. 
It's, uh, you know, one can understand how the heart fun functions mechanically quite easily, but actually trying to write idiomatically in the way that I can write idiomatically for the piano is, is hard. Mm. So that piece had a premiere, and then Oliver and I have done a lot of work on it, and he's done a lot of amazing things that have helped shape the piece in mm. a better way. Because I suppose in terms of this dialogue between what you've done in a long time ago in the past and where you might be now, of course, older and wiser, that means I've clocked up more experience on a practical level mm. and I've made more mistakes, but also in some ways learnt how to solve some of those mm, mistakes. Yeah. And I suppose one of my feelings about some of my earlier music that might go into the bottom drawer is often where the creative ambition is admirable, but the technical difficulties uh, mean that that creative vision never gets through. Mm. So finding that balance between trying to create music that speaks in a direct way, that's communicative, that's effective, that mm. really works versus its technical difficulties is a really hard balance. Mm. And I think for some composers like me, when you're younger, you get that balance wrong. Mm. That doesn't mean I can't get that balance wrong now. Of course mm. I can. And in, in a way with the heart piece, I think I did. Mm. And But what I've learned is there are ways of rethinking and revisiting mm. to coax it into a place yeah. where it's going to work. And that's been a pleasure. Massive thank you to Julian Phillips for joining us for this podcast. Stories of Sweet Visions takes place on the 25th of November in the Milton Court Concert Hall, and you can get your tickets at the Barbican Box Office or gsmd.ac.uk slash events, and there's more information there about the programme and the brilliant performers that we'll have that evening. You can follow and subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever you like to get your podcasts, uh, and follow us at Guildhall School on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and everywhere else. Thanks very much for listening and thanks again, Julian, for joining us. Pleasure. Pleasure.